Welcome to the Pillars of Health podcast with resident strength coach, John Carroll. The Pillars of Health is on a quest to help you gain insight into the best ways you can manage stress, sleep, exercise, and nutrition in order to live your best life. Stay up to date with the Pillars of Health podcast by checking out our Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as CoachJohnCarroll.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Pillars of Health. My name is John Carroll. Episode 14, I'm excited to bring you this one featuring Kevin Carr. Kevin is someone I know from my time at Mike Ball Strength Conditioning. He also has his own setup over there with Movement as Medicine. He's a fantastic guy within the strength conditioning community, has a wealth of knowledge to learn from. So I really got a lot from this podcast. I know you will too. Among the topics we discuss, we go into how Kevin goes about training older adults, how he manages the rehab process going from perhaps PT to the training setting. And also, we go into a little bit about heart rate training as well. And somewhere in between, we'll talk about Cameron and Mace. A little 90s hip-hop for you. Hope you enjoy. All right. On the Pillars of Health today, I am absolutely delighted to have Coach Kevin Carr with me. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me, John. Happy to be here. So I'm going to kind of start it off. Let me hit you off from the top on a little intro question. Now, I had something down... I have something a little different, but I'm going with, seeing as you're a hip-hop head from the 90s, I'm going to go and ask you about your thoughts on Mace and Cameron going at it right now. You know what? I, as a <laughs> as like a hip-hop head, it's like it's refreshing for me. I, I, I'm always like Team Cameron, though. So, like, you know, I, I, I do enjoy it, though. Just a little bit of, um, you know, 90s, early 2000s hip-hop being being breathed back into the mainstream. I'll take that. And there was yeah. also a Jada Kiss and fabulous album that came out so like i i can take that this week you know yeah it's been a little flashback right it's been nice yeah take it when you can get it you know <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't heard of you kevin which might be hard for a lot of people you're pretty big on the on the scene when it comes to strength and conditioning coaching in general just give me a little bio on your background how you got to come to work at mike ball strength and conditioning movement as medicine certified functional strength coach Let me a little background there yeah, I mean, I've been at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning now for, like, gosh, like 10 years just about now. But if you kind of uh, rewind, I didn't turn there in 2007, 2008, um, did a summer internship while I was in undergrad at uh, University of Massachusetts. And then, you know, it was just one of those situations, like a lot of our coaches, you know, come back on spring break, fall break, winter break, summer break, and, and coach whenever we could get hours. And, you know, we were really, they needed coaches then, so it was good. It was a lot of opportunity for me to coach early in my career I mean, you know time flies I'm out of school you know four years or so after that and um, I've been a full-time coach there ever since so I graduated college in 2010 and I've just been there steadily um, since then and while I was there with Brendan we were living together with a couple other people and we went back to massage school and started movement as medicine and now that was like five years ago which is like even crazier yeah, seems a lot time shorter right yeah, like it's when you're working all the time, you know, the time flies. Yeah. Um, so we kind of built that business and, and with the help from, you know, Marco Sanchez and Scott Georgiakos, who's working for me, and now Nicole. Uh, we have some therapists working out of right out of the same building as Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. So it allows me to kind of wear multiple hats and kind of work smoothly between two different businesses, you know, working in the clinic where my office is um in a rehab type setting and then work going right out to the floor and able to coach and work on the floor and do personal training and and kind of work along with the coaches in mbsc on a daily basis so right. it's kind of turned itself into a nice little compound for us to uh 
to, to be able to all work in one space. And then obviously certified functional strength coach coming out of Mike Boyle strength conditioning. That's kind of obviously our headquarters there as well. So it's a nice little uh, spot for us all as coaches to, to kind of be located, you know? Yeah. So, and tell me, how did uh, movement as medicine come about? It was funny. So, I mean, I know when I first looked into kinesiology, it was because I was interested in physical therapy. And then I got into strength conditioning. And I really found myself loving strength conditioning. And I didn't want to be in as much of a classical clinical setting. And I think Brendan Rear kind of had a similar thought process as well. And when we were both working as personal trainers and strength coaches for Mike there, we started to see, you know, we didn't want to work as like a, a physical therapist and, and that's, that's okay. It's just not the, the, the setting that I was interested in, but there were just some, um, tissue extensibility and soft tissue things that we wanted to be able to deal with on our own to kind of enhance our own client's experience and their own life and their own movement quality. So kind of figured out how could we go back to massage school and be able to incorporate that into what we were already doing at MBSC. Mm-hmm. Um, there was definitely a need for manual therapy there. I mean, John Paloff kind of has his plate full as full on PT there all the time is like has a full client list. But then there was also just some things that we were like, okay, we can deal with these if we get the ability to use our hands and understand how to incorporate manual therapy to help people move better. So Brandon and I just decided, hey, let's go back to school and build a business off of this. And obviously, um, MBSC has served as a, uh, a nice little incubator for us to kind of grow a business within. I mean, there's a very captive audience there for us to to provide the service to and that that really served as a great launch pad for us i think it's hugely beneficial right having movement as medicine in the same building as a strength conditioning facility i think a lot of facilities are kind of going that route now these days too mm-hmm. and in, in the well it's because the client really wins i mean it's great for business but then like for instance like last week i had an adult group and this person comes in they're telling me about you know this issue they're having with like their lower leg and their foot and i'm able to take them like right after the group, be like, hey, I actually have time right now. Why don't I check this out? Just get, bring you through a quick assessment. We kind of figure out what you have going on. Yeah. And then I can either point you in the direction of, you know, maybe you need a physical therapist, or maybe you need a Cairo, or maybe you need to go to your primary care, or maybe you can see me for treatment. And I'm already your coach out on the floor with your group. So I can seamlessly kind of work in some of the approaches that, that our assessment took us to into their training program. So it makes it very convenient for them. Yeah. And, and that's really the goal, you know, so it's uh, trying to make as much of a one-stop shop for people as, as we possibly can. Excellent. And that's kind of getting into one of the topics we're going to cover today, the managing the rehab process. And I've found from personal experience, you know, when someone has to go out and maybe go to a PT that could be 20, 30, 40 minutes away, maybe the buy-in there isn't as much as, per se, maybe a setup like yours, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like... And, and I, I do refer out, I'm lucky also that I have John in the building, which is, is great. Yeah. You know, sometimes, yeah, you, you getting to convince them to go out to, to somewhere. And sometimes that takes you having to go and take them to the appointment. And then yeah. I've been in that situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you can have something, people are always looking for convenience. And if, if we can provide that to them without them having to make sacrifices in their day and their schedule and things like that, then that's always going to be best case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a, that's fantastic. And really good route for the, the fitness industry to be going to kind of hand multi-stops in the one building. So that's great. One of the, uh, one of the things I want to mention to you, of course, I interned under you and Brandon at MBSC and, you know, I've got to say, I learned a bunch from you guys. I'm very thankful for that. And one of my takeaways from you in particular, Kev, was the quote, uh, kill them with kindness. 
mm-hmm. and I have always uh, kind of carried that on from my time at MBSC uh, in relation to dealing with people, whether it's a good situation or possibly a negative situation, always kind of remaining in control of emotions and being that person who's but basically being the bigger person and taking that route and being kind in every situation that you can be. So, Yeah, and that's, you know, we, it's funny. We just talked about that in the staff meeting this past week. Like if anyone on here is a Body by Boyle online listener and you can, you can hear our staff meetings that we put up every Tuesday, we, we literally just talked about this and talked about how you know, the number one thing you can always do is, as a, in a customer service standpoint, is to always be kind and polite, even if some, a situation turns negative. Like, it's never about being, being right. It's about being kind. And we actually discussed this just the other day with Mike in the staff meeting because we always want to continue to keep that, that uh, positive affect and, and welcoming affect in, in, in the gym. So that's always been my policy, always. And, yeah. and that's probably something I just get from my, my parents, but it's also something that Mike has really instilled at uh, at the gym as well yeah yeah i think that's a great outlook to have going forward cool let's do this we're going to take a look at our first topic today the training aging adults section and i want you to tell me basically how much of your clientele is made up of this uh maybe older generation can you give me some information on how much that takes up of your training time and exactly what you're looking to try and teach and instill in these people regards skills and competencies yeah, I would say 50% of like the people I see roughly on a daily basis fit into like that 50 plus category. Um, and then even outside of that, I always, you know, really try to impress people like everybody's aging, right? Yeah. So even me or you, like I'm 30, what I do now, the inputs I put in now are significantly going to affect how I am once I enter that population, right? So I have some guys and girls that are around my age and although – you know, I'm training them, might be training them more aggressively, some of the more soft, finer skills and things that I might focus on with adults later down the road, I'm still going to start to focus with them because it's the fact that people, you know, stop doing certain things that they end up in a, a, a rut once they hit 50 plus, right? Yeah. But if you look at the adult population at MBSC, like that's, it's over 50% of our, our uh, revenue probably comes from that population now, like it's continually growing, which is great to see more and more people coming in and training later in life but our adult groups especially like i have multiple adult groups and and lots of adult clients that come and see me in movement as medicine where you're really thinking about okay how can we maximize quality of life and not just lifespan but also health span like uh how can i keep you as active and resilient as possible into the the later years of life so that's um that's definitely a big focus at msc not just for me but for really all of the coaches because we all kind of have some sort of contact with the adult groups right I had Dr. Jonathan Jenkins on the show recently. He's a psychologist, and basically he was saying his goal is, like, I want to get to 90 to 100 and still be able to play in a pickup soccer game, run down the line for 40 meters and not be dead at the end of it, you know? so Yeah, and like, and you say, like, he's a psychologist. A lot of it is half the job is, is convince people, like, hey, you can still do these things and putting them in situations where – they start to see success with training and then they, they think, okay, maybe playing a soccer game at that age is still possible or maybe playing, you know, having some sort of competitive aspect or, or recreational sport at that age is still a, a possibility. And I think a lot of it is, is getting people to, to realize that they're still capable of that. Yeah. Um, cause we see so many adults that come in and the line is like, Oh, I'm just getting old. Right. Like they just accept a, an ache or a pain or, or stiffness as like a common thing that just has to come with aging. I'm like these, Aging and you know uh, physical decline are not um, 
things you need to accept, right? Like you, you can get older, but you don't have to always get slower. You don't always have to get weaker and stiffer. So, um, part of it's just the, the psychological empowerment that comes with the training as well. Yeah. Do you notice that a lot of people, once they kind of get in routine with you or in the groups, et cetera, that they notice like, okay, I see some power coming back, some strength coming back. Like this, this is definitely worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I always take Mike's like real cautious approach and like little baby steps at a time. So they don't hit, um, you don't want them to hit like ruts in the road or speed bumps because especially as you get older, that can become pretty discouraging as, you know, getting them away from exercise, right? Like if they get an injury or they get really sore or stiff from, from a routine, it sometimes it can be, you know, make them shy away from training um, a little bit. So I always just try to think little bits of time focusing on strength and power. And then all of a sudden they, they come in and they're like, wow, my body feels different or, you know, consistently doing those mobility approaches day in and day out over time. They're like, okay, I'm actually, you know, feeling better with this training as opposed to sometimes they go to a gym and, and they take a step backwards. And then, empowering them to do something with that i think sometimes we focus a lot on what we do in the gym mm -hmm. i try to talk to all my clients and say okay what are we doing outside the gym now because i think as their coach it's not just it doesn't end when they leave the gym like i'm like hey i want you should join a walking group or you should join you know a swimming club or you should join you know do something outside of here that that you love and that you're doing this for a reason not just coming in and kind of checking the boxes two or three days yeah. a week yeah, you know. and that's something I've really kind of put an emphasis on as well because when it comes to people who come to the gym, like you say, <clears throat> they might be coming in two or three times a week. That's fantastic. But then on the other side, just not doing anything outside the gym can be a little bit of a detriment too. So I would say like going for a walk in nature, you know, going for a hike, whatever it may be, just something where you're out and about getting that aerobic system moving, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, cause I think overall we have to look at ourselves, not just as trainers, but as health practitioners. And that means kind of helping them live a well-rounded lifestyle that isn't just gym focused. Like I, I have, there's some guys who are just like desk jockey jockeys and they're like, Hey, I wouldn't be doing anything if I wasn't coming to see you. So obviously, yeah. you know, it's important that those two hours, three hours a week are, are important, but I'm like, okay, let's find a, a hobby just from a psychological standpoint that, that ties you more into being healthy, right? Like yeah. that, that it can't just be the gym. And I, I think, again, that goes back to, you know, just uh, like eliminating the coach. You want to create some autonomy mm -hmm. um, for the client that, that they can manage their own health, even if you weren't there, right? Yeah, that's an awesome point. Just giving them that autonomy really creates buy-in and kind of shows them that, hey, I can, I can kind of own this as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And now like with me traveling more and more, uh, yeah. teaching, for CFSC, this is something that's become increasingly important to me. Like I, I always have my people covered, all my clients covered. Like when I'm away, I have a really great staff at MBSC that like the same people cover the same clients for me when I'm traveling. But at the same time, like driving home the point to the client because at first when I was traveling, they'd be like, "Oh my God, you're leaving! Like what? What am I going to do?" Yeah. And I, I try to make the point like, "Hey, it's your body, and I'm trying to teach you as much as I can. And I feel like I'm failing you if I leave and you don't feel like you know how to exercise." Um, then I'm, then I'm screwing up. Right. So, uh, it's been more and more important to me and, and I've spun more on the forefront for me to realize like I need to teach people. If I put you in a field with a couple kettlebells, I hope you'd be able to figure out what to do. Uh, if I wasn't there for the day, you know, <laughs> hopefully not stare at them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you're assessing, uh, this older population and writing programs, what are some of the common patterns you see and then kind of leading on from that, what are some common themes you see in your programs when you write in for this, uh, aging adult population? Mm -hmm. Um, there's some, some boxes I try to check and look at an assessment. One, just general strength. 
Um, and this was like an interesting thing is, you know, we have all these common assessments, um, that we use for athletes. Like we'll want to see, you know, a certain number hang, uh, weight for hang clean. We want to see a bench press, double body weight, deadlift, whatever. Like there's pretty repeatable vertical jump. Um, think about like what you would look at in the combine. Um, but then when you look at adults and you ask like, what is the standard for, you know, a 60 year old guy, what do you want to see him be able to goblet squat? What do you want to see, you know, a 45 year old woman be able to do for pushups? You know, and the standards aren't necessarily as universal. So it's something I tried to start to look at, at MBSC because like, I want to know like what's good and bad when someone walks in the door, like an FMS is going to be pretty standard Mm -hmm. as far as movement goes. But I think strength as far as resiliency long term term is really important. So some of the things that I look at is, um, goblet squat gives me a pretty good idea of, just lower body bilateral strength. And like for guys, I'd like to be able to see them like do a 28 or 32 down to a 12 inch box, like eight to 10 reps, pretty solid. I'd like to see a female be it's able about to do like a kettle, kettlebell, right? Kettlebell. Yep. Um, yeah, 28 or 32 kilo. And then a, a female be able to do about a 20 kilo down to a 12 inch box with good form. If I see that, I'm like, okay, pretty good lower body strength. Yeah. Single leg squat, both male and female, you know, eight each side to a bench, like an 18 inch bench, bench or box you know, reaching those weights out in front of them, like five pound weights. Right. Can it, that'll tell me, okay, single leg, hip stability, proprioception. I like to be able to see, you know, 10 perfect pushups. You know, and when I say that, I mean like chest down to an Eric's pad, lock the arms out the top. Can they farm or carry their body weight down and back the length of the gym? So for our gym, that's about 80 yards. Yeah. And that's split between two hands, obviously. So just looking at things like that, okay, those are basic strength numbers. As far as movement quality goes with the FMS, I see... I mean, leg lower and shoulder mobility is where I spend most of my time anyways, but mm-hmm. I see a lot of a lot of very poor shoulder mobility and leg separation. So I, I tend to focus on that with everybody, but you see it more, more and more apparent with adults, especially people who are desk bound, whose hips and shoulders don't, uh, don't move so well. Yeah. And then from an aerobic and conditioning standpoint, we really use a, uh, what's called like a modified Cooper's test on the salt bike or the Aerodyne bike. Yeah. And we'll use that kind of as assessments, seven minute time trial kind of gives us an idea of I can look at their resting heart rate, their max heart rate, and then their heart rate recovery. So it can kind of give me an idea of, okay, are they, do we have to do some work aerobically to get them more fit or are we able to kind of go right into doing more interval type work with them? Are they going to be able to handle that? So I always kind of go through that test battery and then depending on if they have pain, maybe we go SFMA. That's kind of my standard for for assessment within uh, movement and medicine from a rehab standpoint so yeah. but i'm always kind of looking at just basic strength and uh and then aerobic capacity for everyone that comes to the door after doing an fms cool some some good protocols to kind of have as standards right yep absolutely nice. uh just out of curiosity when you're doing like shoulder mobility as a therapist or you know when movement as medicine how much attention do you necessarily pay to the rib cage and what's going on at the shoulder there yeah i all i I think everything kind of has to start there. Um, you need a, a, a good fixed point for everything else to move off. Right. So if that rib cage is up and you see the huge rib flare and you know, that base position of the shoulder isn't even going to be good to begin with. So you kind of have to start with breath to create, you know, that, uh, the zone of apposition a la PRI, right. Um, to, to lock them down. So I, yeah, I'm always kind of starting there. And one of the assessments is just, they don't even know. I'll be like lay on the table to look at, you know, passive shoulder mobility. And I just want to see how they lay. Yeah. And you can see those ribs up right away on, on some people and you know, okay, that's where I got to start And more, more often than not. That's where you got to start for most things I find, whether yeah. it's, 
neck, hips, or shoulders. It's uh, usually going to start from the inside out. Exactly. And when you go to maybe program breathing drills and stuff like that, what way do you go about kind of getting buy-in in that situation? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really good from a therapy situation as far as if they're in the clinic with me. I usually have them on the table in my room yeah. first. So it's a little more isolated where sometimes you know you've been in MBSC like loud, a lot of people running around on the floor. Yeah. If they're not someone who's completely comfortable with that atmosphere, it can be harder to implement some of the breath stuff because they're already like stimulated just from the environment. And some people that doesn't bother, like athletes, there can be a lot more stimulation going on. They can usually tone down. But if you've got someone off the street who's just general pop and, and there's already all this going on around them, it might not be a good atmosphere. So sometimes I just take them, if it's a training client, into the clinic anyways. But laying them on the table in like a, a supine, knees bent, like that hook line position, right. and just have them there. Like I don't worry about the 90-90 yet. I just want them to understand, okay, where do I want the air to come in? Mm-hmm. Where do I want the air to come out? And what position do we want to try to get that rib cage into? And I let them just practice in there, like 20 breaths. And once they get that, then I might feed into different postures, whether it's a 90-90 or that, the quadruped position or, yeah. or whatever it might be. But kind of get them in a low-stress, comfortable situation on the massage table where I can kind of talk them through it. Yeah. It's a great starting point typically for me. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I've definitely seen a lot more results when people have kind of got the the full exhale and get a little bit of movement from that rib cage, a little rotation, right, reciprocation. Mm-hmm. And that knock-on effect to the shoulder then, and, and suddenly things start clearing up over time, and, and that's really when you see that buy-in, that kind of like, okay, I've just kind of had had something click there. This is working. Mm-hmm. Let's keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, getting that down first, and then all of a sudden, you're going to open up a lot more options. And it's great when you kind of see the, the, the light turn on for the client, because yeah. sometimes them being you being like, okay, we're going to work on breath first. It can be kind of like, okay, I don't know what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, from the, that's, I think, what they think from their standpoint. But we kind of see the light switch turn on. It's a, it's a great moment because you know you kind of have something to build off there. Exactly, exactly. So kind of going along this process here, we're kind of touching, we're kind of dancing around almost the rehab process. So let's go into that because you train people, obviously, and then also you're in the rehab process in the clinic. Can you tell me, basically explain how you approach taking on someone maybe who's just being cleared to strength train by their PT or physical therapist? Mm -hmm. Um, I always try to get a good line of communication with that uh, therapist or Mm -hmm. or clinic, wherever they're coming from first, um, just to kind of get it, what it gives confidence to the client when even you just telling them, hey, I'm going to reach out to your PT or reach out to your doctor. I think you start to build a good kind of mental arena for that person to begin their rehab with you, right? If they know, okay, this person is, has my best interest in mind. And I think that goes a long way from them kind of going into what you're doing with confidence. So whether it's someone who's seeing John or someone who's seeing a clinic outside, I'll, I'll make sure we kind of open up that line of communication. Um, and then, you know, also seeing what their history is like with strength training before I even start, because I think a lot of times you just assume when you're doing this stuff all the time that, that people's past experiences with training are similar to what you might do. Um, but like, for instance, I had someone come in before who had a really negative previous experience with strength training. So having that talking about that with them first as a clinician to client kind of clears up any misconceptions, kind of lets them know what you're about first. So always kind of getting that communication out. And then something I think Mike's brilliant at that, that I've really tried to always focus on is, is showing them success very early. Mm-hmm. Um, similar, like we talked about with the adults, um, you know, putting them in a position that, okay, 
they're doing, they do this really, they, this felt easy. Okay. Or there's no pain early on and there's no soreness early on. So maybe if that means starting with like one set of band walks, one set of body weight squats, one set of hip lifts, like on the first day, something that you might think of like, wow, this is going to be way too easy. You realize they're going into that rehab situation probably with low confidence and kind of being a little bit, uh, hesitant to feel soreness or, or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, making sure, okay, we check a positive box, get a big hit of dopamine. They feel positive after that first training session. Then you can, there's something to build off. Um, so kind of always starting in a, an area where they're going to be successful and, and then building and challenging from there. I think sometimes we get, uh, we get re- really excited to give them strength training. And all of a sudden, sometimes you, you do too much too soon, right? Yeah. It's about having that right balance. Nice. Putting them in a position to succeed. I love it. Yeah. So from your experience training, obviously a lot of people coming out of the rehab process, and this will vary obviously depending from person to person, right? But what makes up a good rehab program just on, on your experience? Yep. I think it, it starts obviously with a really thorough assessment process. So I depend on the SFMA. I let that take me to whatever my best intervention is going to be. And that's kind of how I've tried to teach everyone at Movement as Medicine to work is I, I, I trust in Gray and Lee and that I think that they're just probably smarter than me and that they built a really uh, thorough system right. to, to make decisions. So we start there. But then, again, outside of that in intervention it takes me to, I think a good rehab program should look like training. I think a, a really good physical therapist, a really good chiropractor, a really good massage therapist and a trainer, they're – you should we shouldn't be able to differentiate between them really with the exception of a couple techniques that one professional might be able to use and the other might not be able to use right so you know i go through mass fma if it's a joint mobility issue or tissue extensibility issue i address those but then the next question is what what are we going to be able to do in the gym for training one thing that in the last few years has as a therapist that uh I've really focused on is having the initial conversation with the client and telling them like, listen, you're here. I'm going to have to do some manual work on you on the table. There'll be a passive part of it for you where I'm working on you, but I want to spend as much time having it being active for you as possible, whether that's you doing active mobility drills or you out there lifting weights, because the reason you're in my office in the first place is you weren't fit for some sort of activity, whether that was because you got back pain working in your office or you tore an ACL in a game from a non-contact injury, you weren't fit enough for whatever situation you were in. And having that conversation first with them so they kind of understand, that, okay, that, again, there's going to be some autonomy on me. Like I'm going to be in charge of this and not having them be a spectator and a passive part of the treatment process as much as being an active part of the treatment process. Because yeah. um, I'll never forget, I had this one guy come in and this is when I kind of knew this, but the light bulb really went off. It was a guy, he didn't have a background in, in exercise really at all. He was overweight. He had chronic knee pain. And, you know, MRI has had some cartilage stuff in there, like you or I might even have in our knee. Right. But the the big thing was, it was like, well, you're overweight and you, you're out of shape. And I think if we just nip that in the butt, the knee's probably going to feel a lot better. But he, he had come to me with the thought process of this guy's going to rub my knee until it feels better and then I'm going to leave. <laughs> um, and I had to make it clear to him. Um, and, he, and he wasn't a very big fan of this. I, he was like, I'm not really interested in exercise. And I said, well, to be quite frank with you, I don't think you'll get better and I don't want you to spend your money with me on me rubbing your knee when I honestly think, I mean, you, you are, you're having trouble standing and walking for 10 minutes at a time. Like this, this, the big, uh, the no pun intended, that's the elephant in the room here. And we, uh, we need to address that first. And the second I started to be able to be confident in our treatment process enough to say that to people in the outright, our out, our outcomes were much, much better. Yeah. 
So just kind of being honest up front, laying it out, and letting people know like this is this is really the best route for you, and that's really kind of like, like you could look at that from a position of kind of nipping yourself in the bud regards earning some money from that because if he wants to come you know have you do some work on his knee sure you're picking up you know check every time whatever but the best thing for the client was that one-on-one frank discussion yeah exactly and i remember thinking like i told him i said listen like i i could take money from you week in and week out and yeah and, but I know in my heart of hearts that, that you're not going to get better. And that I said to him, it doesn't mean there's not going to be any manual therapy involved, but for you to get better, you need to get stronger. You need to probably cut some weight down. And, and I think a lot of clients do appreciate that because there's a lot of places that won't kind of have that. And they just kind of put them through the standard PT protocol. And then once their sessions run out, their sessions run out. But I, I, I said, Hey, my, my goal is to eliminate you from my clinic. And then you're training full time in NBSC. Like, Hey, I'm trying to feed people into that business all day long. Yeah. Because they're going to be your best referral, right? If I would say exactly. like, hey, don't don't worry. I think the best clinicians get people in and out quicker. But then that person's going to be raving about you. And you don't have to worry about advertising. They'll do it for you. Exactly. You don't have to keep them coming back, coming back. Yeah. Just do the best you can and they'll come back no matter what. Mm-hmm. So injury in itself can be you know, definitely something that can cause limitations within people coming into the gym. In my experience, probably yours too, there's people who want to get back as quick as possible and perhaps overdo it. And then there's people who are very timid to try and get back to where they were. How do you approach each type of person in regards to getting back to their, their competent training level? Yeah. Cause you're right. There's people in like each camp, right? You got your people who I'm like, all right, let's put the brakes on a little bit. Yeah. And those are usually like former athletes who, who, who are like, okay, I, I can get through this and want to push it. The people who like the gym, they're typically gym rats. And then there's people who are scared. You, a lot of these are your chronic pain people, people who might be sensitized and kind of taught, caught in that pain cycle. And I, I definitely deal with both. Um, with the athletes, sometimes it's about trying to give them the feeling of that result without that method. Like, for instance, like you have a person who has a history of back pain and they're like really rare to try to deadlift again. Like, listen, I want you to deadlift. Like, trust me. I think that's how we prevent that. But maybe we have to take some baby steps. Okay. What do they want to feel? Do they want their legs to be gassed? They want to feel like that feeling after a few heavy sets of deadlifts. Okay. Maybe we can give you that with some goblet squats done with some tempo, right? Right. We don't have to load your spine as well. Like thinking, how can I give you an alternative fitness option that gives you that mental experience and that physical experience that you want that that doesn't necessarily have to be that mode and then ensure them that like listen we're going to take baby steps to get to this this is going to be our goal and you share that goal with them and then on the other end i definitely deal with a lot of those people who are kind of stuck in a pain cycle and they're they have fear avoidance right like they don't want to they're like oh i don't want to do this i don't want to do this i don't want to do this and then that that actually makes the pain worse because they become less fit and then they they become sensitized to certain activities like Like I have some people who just because they had back pain, like they won't do anything like where there's a weight above like 20 pounds because they just think that they're, that that's going to, you know, cause them pain. And and I I understand it's a real fear. So finding ways to kind of, again, highlight successes. I think you have to be those type of clients. You have to be their biggest cheerleader. Um, So when they have chronic pain, like anytime they find, they go through a positive experience, I think it's your job to highlight that positive experience. Like, hey, that's great. You hit a, you know, two kilo PR on this carry or you did, you know, one more push up. Like you need to show them like this was great because then they have a positive association and in a really good book that isn't about chronic pain that could teach you a lot about how to deal with people with chronic pain mm-hmm. is um, Happiness Advantage. Okay. And before happiness, there's these two Sean Aker books. Um, mm-hmm. He's a positive psychologist from 
Harvard. And it's an unbelievable book as it is. And he has a TED talk as well um, that kind of highlights his stuff. And he talks about, you know, how our brain is always wired to see the negative before the positive. It's a survival technique, right? Like we, we knew like if we saw the alligator down by the water, like you don't want to go back down by the water. Your body remembers that for survival. But the positive experiences tend to pass right through and we know that. So that client had like a bad day and like one thing kind of hurt them. That's going to, for them, they define their whole training session with that, right? Whereas they could hit two PRs on that same day and in they don't focus on that. So yeah. I think as the, the trainer, especially for people who, who are coming from an injury and are scared, like highlight anything they did well, anything that went great. And then they start to kind of hit positive check marks in their head rather than always focusing on like, oh, this hurt today. Yeah. Like, yeah, this hurt today, but we can always do something else. Like you, you're still you're still training. It doesn't mean you're not going to use your body. So you just have to kind of be a be a cheerleader. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it can sometimes be hard as a coach. You got to remind yourself like you're not in their body. You're not in their mind. So it it's it's your job to to highlight the wins that's very true how much of it do you find kevin is saying or kind of getting the message across that any exercise really can be bad if it's not executed correctly and kind of introduce them to solid technique and slowly build them back up once mm -hmm. they are kind of able to to maybe deadlift again as you said yeah it's about you know again i take people back to the same way we teach the middle school kids which is like this is strength class and strength school not yeah. workout and them understanding like, hey, if you can go sub max and do stuff perfectly repeatedly, you're going to get in better shape anyways. Yeah. But don't worry about, uh, you know, loading things heavy and, and, and rushing ahead. But just like thinking about, OK, am I doing this well and, and practice, practice, practice. And over time, you'll be you'll be back to where you need to be, because, again, sometimes you talk about that first client that really like overzealous client who wants to rush back. Be like, right. OK. We, we need to practice shooting some jumpers, you know, before we were backing up to three point line, like just <laughs> a few at a time, few at a time, few at a time until you, you're kind of back in your groove. Nice. We're going to get into a little bit on heart rate today. And I know you guys use MyZone at MBSC. Can you just kind of fill people in on what MyZone is exactly? Mm -hmm. Yep. So they're a, um, a heart rate monitoring system. You can do a personal one, um, like through your iPhone. Um, but then you can also have like a, a facility set up where we have in the gym, we have what four TVs set up in the, all the different spaces where all our clients can see their heart rate displayed mm -hmm. or they can just have it on their phone. Um, and they wear a stretch done with a strap around the chest, typically the most accurate way to do it. And it just allows us as coaches to program, you know, interval work correctly and to see where our clients are. Cause sometimes you don't know yeah. and for them to get feedback for themselves. And what's great is, on the iPhone, too, I can add all my clients. So when they're doing stuff away from the gym, I can monitor their intensity of what they're doing. So sometimes mm -hmm. they'll go to another gym when they're not with us or mm -hmm. they'll, they'll do stuff outside, and it allows us to keep track. So it's a, it's a pretty thorough system, and I think there's a lot of similar options like Polar and, and things like that as well, but my zone's been pretty good for us. Yeah. What was it that kind of got you guys to the point where you said, okay, we need to get a heart rate system in here. This would be a huge advantage for us and our clients. Yeah, well, Mike had, had had a polar for years at BU when he was there, okay. and he utilized that with those hockey guys for a long time. And I think it was a matter of, one, us seeing the value with our high school and college age athletes, and mm -hmm. then also us seeing the value with the adult athletes. So we were like, okay, it's worth the investment. We had a couple different companies come and do demos, and my zone worked out as being like the most user-friendly for the client because we want them to utilize it on their own as well. And yeah. um, they were able to, as far as setting it up for us, kind of do the best job. So just, I, I guess, us seeing the value in, in, in investing in it. And um, I think for us who use it uh, at the gym and our clients who use it, they really, really value it. 
Um, and it's really about education to get the client to, to understand, okay, um, why is this valuable? Why should they spend an extra, whatever, $75 on a strap yeah. um, when they sign up for training and, and let them understand, okay, this is going to affect your outcomes. Right. So they buy their own strap. And then, as you mentioned, they can use it outside the gym to track whatever there is. And you can also access that, that information too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. And, yeah. Yeah. We don't require them. Um, I kind of wish we could, but it's like, Hey, if you're already paying for training, do, do we, do we make you spend an extra 75? But with my clients, like if I have new training clients, I pretty much tell them like, Hey, I, I, I need you to buy one of these because yeah. I care not enough about your outcome. But you know, we get mixed. Some people are like, I don't want to have my heart rate displayed up there on the screen. I'm like, you can change your name, but you know, sometimes we get people, you know, who want to keep it private. Yeah. But Again, just them, I'm like, hey, this $75 investment is going to help me better serve you. And it's actually, we used to always do intervals, like, right, before we used heart rate, like, got 20 on, 40 off, or 30 on, minute off, whatever. But Mike actually shows this in his conditioning DVD that he came out with, like, last year. We we had a group of our uh, coaches run shuttles with it and run run shuttles without it. And we went off the time technique versus the heart rate technique. And, like, we had we had some people who were requiring like three or four to one rest, which the time interval was not going to kick it. So their, their outputs were, were kind of falling off by yeah. the second or third round of work. Um, it shows you like everybody's a little bit different. And for instance, like I have a guy I've worked with for a long time when he first started, he was kind of an office worker, didn't really have much of a training background at all. And, you know, by the time we got through the active warm up, like his heart rate was steadily in like 90% and like I couldn't, he wasn't dropping. Like we had no oomph left to even throw med balls. Right. Yeah. And I, it was a big eye-opener for me being like, listen, I can't just plug every adult into like our intro program and expect them to be able to be aerobically fit enough to even do the lifting. Right. So we had to kind of work in some cardiac output type stuff on his off days and one of the days he was with me to kind of get him up to, to just baseline, right? And if I didn't really see those numbers, it would be harder for me to kind of make the right decisions to, to program for him. Yeah, just work on lowering their heart rate and get them down mm-hmm. to a more comfortable level, right? Exactly. So when for general population, when they come into the gym, what is your advice kind of guidelines regards heart rate tracking? Because obviously you don't want them checking the screen every two minutes and, and stuff like that. Kind of what's your what's your advice there? Yeah. So when they have the straps and like I have my adult group and I might have some new people, I just tell them to focus on the colors. Um, right. That way they're not worrying about the numbers. I'm like, listen, when we're doing something heavy for strength, I don't want you in. I don't want you starting the exercise in the yellow or the red. I want you starting the exercise in the green or the blue. Right. If you finish in the yellow or the red, that's fine. Okay. Then when we're doing circuit stuff, if you're kind of hanging around at the end, like if we're doing our conditioning and you're, we're doing like maybe interval work and you're getting some partial recovery, I'm okay with it then for them. Yeah. But if we're focusing on the strength stuff, I say green or blue entering the exercise yeah. and let yourself come down because I think a lot of them, because of what's popular in fitness right now, I mean, you got your, your orange theory and you got your CrossFit and all the like higher intensity models that go on out there. That brings the thought like orange theory itself. Like they want them in the orange or the red, right? Yeah, all the time. And although hard work is good, like I want them there sometimes when we're doing aerodyne work and assault bike work or we're running like, I, yeah, I want to see you working at that intensity. Right. Um, getting them to understand that, that recovery is, impo- is also extremely important because if you recover fully, you can work harder. I don't want a bunch of medium. I don't want a bunch of 50% out of you. I want like hard efforts in, in recoveries when we're in the weight room. So just basic education like that. I don't, I don't try to teach them too much on the physiology unless they're, they're really interested in it. But just, I think if you go off the colors and say, okay, just wait till you're green or blue. And with the, the tempo running and some of the running that works really well, cause they can just see the screen. They don't even have to worry about the number says. 
and they just go for it. That's very true. How much of your education to general pop uh, clients is about recovery and the importance of that just as much as like training is important to kind of get them to understand that recovery is up there with that as well? It's huge. It's actually, I probably do that more than anything because like the training, they come in and I, I mean, I teach them the basics of training and I, like I said, create some autonomy, but it has to be all education for the stuff outside because they're not here. So getting them to, you know, understand like, hey, the value of, like you said, a walk in the woods for a nervous system recovery day right. or, you know, getting them to be like, hey, your legs are consistently sore. Maybe you try the Normatec system that we have or maybe you, you get some massage work and, and it's going to help your long term outcomes where you get some people who are just go, go, go again all the time. They wonder why, you know, they're not getting better or they're consistently feeling sore or achy. And, and as, as simple as, you know, hydration for recovery, like you start with the, the real, real basics with yeah. a lot of our adults. And that's something Mike is really stressful from a nutrition standpoint, or recovery standpoint, is keeping it really, really simple. Because a lot of them, you, you think, they, well, most people who come to see us don't even have the basics down. I mean, if you're not drinking, you know, you know, half your body weight in ounces in water a day, like, why don't we start there yeah. and see if we can get you to to get some water in throughout the day and then we can start to talk about some nutrition strategies and we can talk about sleep strategies sleep hygiene is a big thing yeah and that's dan john has that the talk he talks about you know shark habits like having them just shut the lights off in the room and say okay you'd be horrified with the, like between the alarm clock and the computer and the phone how bad sleep conditions people people have so that's definitely a conversation that I have. And then more and more recently, using things like Headspace or some sort of meditation app just to get people to get 10 minutes a day of mindfulness work in. It would be amazing. It's amazing how you can see their, their actual stress and their ability to deal with stress in the gym change once they can you know, get some of the stuff out of their head. Right. Yeah, no, that's huge because stress is something we've talked about before on the podcast. And for a lot of people to slow down like that, it's asking a lot. And they, they find it pretty difficult to even sit there for not five, but maybe one or two minutes and kind of meditate or just, just sit there and be quiet and kind of get your thoughts, right? Yeah. So like I said, I mentioned we use the Normatech system at MBSC uh, in, in, in Movement as Medicine. And we kind of have it in the corner and uh, like a chair and it's a chair that goes completely backwards and flat. And I, I try not to, I tell my clients in the no cell phone zone because yeah. it's funny. I remember I looked over and this one woman who's like pretty highly stressed as a client uh, in the gym, she's always kind of going to a high power position in a job. And like, she's telling me how she's sore. And I look over and she's like freaking out at her phone while in the Normatech dealing with stuff at work. I'm like, well, this is completely counterintuitive <laughs> to what we want. Yeah. So I'm like, leave your phone in the lobby. There's a, I have a bunch of books over there. I have an iPad with headphones so you can just listen to Pandora um, or you could – we have Headspace and uh, the Calm app on there so you can do meditation or just listen to like nature sounds or sleep. Like I'm like just pick one of those and just give yourself 30 minutes. I'm like you could do 30 minutes, 20 minutes without a phone. But you'd, it's crazy to, to – some people like they get over there and they leave their phone. They're like, oh, my phone is over. I'm like, yes, yes, <laughs> like can't get up. Uh, <laughs> I think the stats are like you know 500 plus times a day we check our phone, something like that. Yeah, it's craziness. Yeah. Addicts. Bunch yeah, I'm mean, I mean, as bad as anybody with work, but it's like you, being able to be able to shut off yeah. um, at, at some point just to, to check back in with yourself. I think it goes a really, really long way. Right, right. And it's just like a training session. Like you want to be able to come in and get toned up. Like you want to get into those lifts where you have to use high intensity, but then you want to, sort of to come down from that once you leave the gym too. So, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So. Shifting gears a little bit, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions regards the four pillars. We have stress, sleep, exercise, nutrition, and these are just for you personally. How or what do you use for stress management? 
Um, I try to keep just a meditation habit. Personally, for me, at least 10 minutes a day. Usually, it's when I have my coffee in the morning. Right. Um, and you know, you know who works? Scott Jerjaklis, who works for me, actually taught me a lot about meditation. I, I started with the Headspace app, and then he kind of helped me because he's a big time meditation practitioner. And just you know, 10 minutes where I, I'm able to you know reset and focus on breathing. His thing always says to me is like breathe and just try to focus on the end of your nose. Um, so I'll focus on that. That's my stress management. And then I also spend a lot of time in nature. Like I'm big on hiking, like every week. I, if anything, I just get out to the fells, yeah. um, which is 10 minutes away from me or anywhere where I can hike a little bit. And for me, that really is a huge mental reset for me. It's a almost like walking meditation, getting out and hiking. So for, personally for me, that's what I use right. uh, for stress management the most. Have you read that Andy Galpin book? Yes. Yes. I actually, uh, and I've, he's great. I'm trying to catch him on as many podcasts as yeah. I can as well. Yeah. Uh, he's some really good stuff on there. Yeah, he's fantastic. I heard him on, was it Rogan, Joe Rogan, I think? Yep. Yeah, he was yeah. really good on there. Uh, cool. So for sleep, what's uh, what's your sleep hygiene like? Um, I've I've really gone to keeping the phone outside of my room. Um, mm-hmm. I just got like a uh, one of those regular like wind-up alarm clocks. Yeah. Um, because like I'd find like even if I shut the notifications, like I'd think of something, right? Right. And I'm like, oh, i got to write a note down. Well, now I just keep the notepad like I use that the passion planner. I'll keep that in my room because sometimes I'll be laying down and something will pop up into my head. And I think it's actually good from a stress management and, and recovery and sleep standpoint to get that stuff out. Yeah. Right. But if you put the break up the phone, all of a sudden there's a notification on the phone. You check the phone and then it's a slippery slope downhill. Yeah. And you know what like the blue light does to melatonin release and things like that. So I, I try to keep that away from me and I try to get off the phone, off the computer and everything a minimal of 30 minutes before I sleep um, and I'll do my, I'll just do some reading for 30 minutes to 90 minutes before I sleep, like always. Yeah. And that's like the last thing. So that alone makes a huge difference. I, I'm thankfully like a really good sleeper. So um, I take zinc, I'll take magnesium and maybe a small melatonin, especially if I'm traveling yeah. a lot. I try not to have too much because it can kind of make you groggy, but I try to keep myself in a cycle. And then with the travel, for instance, like I'll be coming back next Monday from Germany, like I'll just make sure okay did i get like nine hours on the day i get back it kind of helps you kind of reset the clock to stay in it exactly. for sure uh, are you able to sleep on a plane uh yes thankfully like i i, I joke i could like sleep anywhere um so my routine like when i get when i get on the plane on tuesday this week like i'll get to the airport i, I make sure i hydrate i always get a, a wall uh a window seat and i curl up and i just i go i go for it and even if that means i get like of just a few hours for me that's that's better than nothing. Like you want to try to get as much as you can. So yeah. I, I I usually do pretty good. There's very few planes I've found can accommodate a six four Irish person. So yeah, you're not built for, no, for airline travel. Definitely not. First class. <laughs> All right, for exercise, obviously we know you're you're a strength coach, but um, regards your schedule and travels and everything that goes with that, what does a, a you know a week look like for you? Regards getting lifts in, how long do they last? What do you try to hit, etc. Yep, I I always get at least three really good strength days in in like for instance if i know i'm traveling i'll get the things that are most dependent on me being in it like mbsc in before i leave like for instance tomorrow i'm going to make sure i do like my deadlift day before i leave on tuesday because even though i'll be teaching at a gym in germany one after the travel i might not really feel like deadlifting that much but i can do some of the more accessory stuff there so i always make sure i get my heavier lifts in pretty much like tomorrow 
I'll go trap bar deadlift. I'll do some incline pressing. And then I'll do after that, like I always get single leg squatting and, and pull-ups in. So I'll, they're like, that's like my day one. And then, so I'm always getting like th- three or four compound lifts in on my strength days. And then on the other days, I'll do some lower intensity, like aerobic work, whether that's tempo running or aerodyne work. And then I'll kind of get like a mixed day where I do some kettlebell work and carries and, and kind of like either strongman type stuff that's kind of mixed in. Okay. Um, like sled pushing, it's kind of like variable. So typically training six days a week, but high, low. So like high intensity day, lower intensity day, higher right. intensity day. And that allows me, especially with the travel to kind of adapt a little bit better and not be kind of like too, too jacked up. Nice. Nice. That's mm-hmm. a yeah, solid approach right there. Mm-hmm. All right. Kev, this was awesome. Yeah. I enjoyed it, man. It's great. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thankful, uh, thankfully giving the opportunity to be on here. So yeah. great questions. <laughs> for uh, for people listening, can you tell them where to find you on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff? Yep. Movement is Medicine is our Instagram. Pretty much put up things multiple times a week on there, try to almost like mini blog posts. posts. So that's pretty much where we put all our videos and pictures and, and any type of information stuff that's on our mind. So you could find us there. Twitter's just Coach Kevin Carr, and that's just kind of any randomness. From from like hip hop stuff to fitness to food, whatever. So yeah, those would be the best places to to find me uh, on the internet. Cool, cool. All right, Kev. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'll see you soon. Mm